Hello, this is Benjamin Boyce, and welcome to the Voice of Reason podcast. Today's guest is Eric Smith, who is the author of A Critique of Anti-Racism in Rhetoric and Composition, The Semblance of Empowerment. Eric is a professor of rhetoric, which is basically the field of studying how to be a good communicator and what it is to communicate well. I hope I phrased that correctly. And he talks about the ways in which anti-racism as a dogma is kind of taking over that field of study or interdepartmental or inter, uh, not agency, but the ways in which that field is communicating with itself. We also talk about his life as a black man growing up in a predominantly white area of America and then going to a mixed black and white and racial school and then finding that he doesn't fit in with any tribe and he then turns to critical thinking to make his way through the world. I know. Crazy, isn't that? We talk about why he thinks critical thinking is better than critical theory and a host of other things. So I will get out of the way now. Here is Eric Smith. How's your day going? Uh, it's, it's going okay. I, um, uh, I'm in rhetoric and composition, and yesterday there was a manifesto oh, no. sent to all members of a certain organization. And it's titled, this ain't another statement, this is a demand for black linguistic justice. Okay. Yeah. And, um, you know, the, the, the general idea I agree with, you know, um, black English is, you know, a legitimate dialect with uh, conven- grammar conventions and, and um, a register and things like that. But, A, they weren't an appointed committee. They just got together and decided they were going to speak for all black people, mm-hmm. which is a problem for me. And secondly, I mean, there's this idea of um, black consciousness and things like that and and no consideration for the addition of a dialect like standard English to one's repertoire. Right. Which could come in handy in professional and civic uh, contexts. Right. I mean. Mm-hmm. And um, and not even a strict standard English, like uh, what's typically called language of wider uh, communication uh, in my field, which is, you know, the way we talk, the way I'm talking to you right now. I may split an infinitive. You know what I mean? I, I, I may end a sentence with a preposition, right? That's not standard English, but it is language of wider communication. That is deemed inherently racist if it's expected of black students Okay. by this committee. So... That just happened. Yeah, and that was released yesterday? Yes. And so, this is something that I noticed, and I I went to college to a very progressive college, and I I went later in life, and I graduated three years ago. And I attempted to become a writing tutor, but there was this whole layer of social justice in that relationship about me not correcting any grammar or directing anybody to reform or you know improve toward the standard. And so I, I found that untenable to actually engage in that if I can't actually work on a skill with somebody. I don't know what we're working about anymore or working on. Right. And that, that's what's missing from a... a a lot of this activism. There's no real plan about how the classroom is going to change. Right? Mm-hmm. 
Um, what exactly are we teaching? Here's the thing about um, black English or what's called code meshing, combining, um, you know, one dialect with a language of wider communication or something like that. Um, that's a rhetorical and contextual decision that our students are able to make on their own. You know, you don't teach it. You gauge your audience and you speak or write accordingly, right? That's supposed to be what we're doing uh, in rec comp courses. We're supposed to be giving these students rhetorical savvy, the ability to gauge a situation and decide what the most persuasive way of speaking or writing will be, right? Um, this is much more narcissistic. It's much more writer and, and speaker based where, you know, the point is I'm going to express myself and stick it to the man as opposed to I'm going to think about, you know, the rhetorical situation and act accordingly. Mm. So so what what would they what do you think that they want to see in the classroom? Is just just shuffling around some form of authoritarian uh, moral standing or um what they really want is something I also really want just to not degrade students for not speaking or writing in um a standard form of English. This is an attitude thing, right? Steve Krashen called it an effective filter. There's, there's a way of going about teaching these things. Um, and you don't have to always let the student know there's something wrong with you because you don't do this yet, right? Yeah. Um, black English is inherently wrong. That's bad, yeah. right? So this is an attitudinal um, you know, situation to me. You know, and studies have shown, um, and, and 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 other scholarship has also shown that, you know, the the professor's attitude is everything. You know, um, how the professor is going about uh, helping students grasp the language of wider communication, right? Um, doing it with respect for that student, as opposed to looking at that student as deficient, you know, yeah. inherently deficient in a certain way, right? So the, it's attitudinal, and. And the fact that, well, let me say this. I think a lot of this has to do with, um, you know, respectability, esteem, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, um, black dignity. Okay. Things like that. And, and forget about the pedagogical logistics, right? We're going to stand up for, you know, black pride and things like that. Um, Assuming that students have issues with black pride, assuming that students, listen, I don't, I didn't need my first year composition professor to tell me to be black, to be, to be proud to be black. Okay. I didn't yeah. need my instructor to tell me to be proud to be black, right? I already had that. I needed to know parallelism, you know, <laughs> and, you know, uh, an effective counter argument. That's what I needed. Okay. Yeah. Right? So there's this assumption by black and white uh, professors that you know the the students of color are all downtrodden, injured, and you know they they need you know us to um, you know acquire some self esteem, mm -hmm. and I don't think that's entirely the case. So while we back up again, and I'd like to know like your trajectory and how you got into this particular field. You want to walk us through how you ended up doing this work? Oh, in the field. Wow. 
that's a long Which is and re- story. Retro, um, right? Yes, yes, yes. I, um, I, I went to graduate school at the University of Illinois, Chicago, uh, in an MA program in American literature. And um, I felt like I was spinning my wheels a little okay. bit. You know, this is this is interesting stuff, but what am I really doing with it? Yeah. The, the department at the time um, was pretty well known in what was called language literacy and rhetoric. And that was his own program that studied language, um, but also studied, you know, the, you know, meaning making, right? The creation of ideologies and discourse communities and, and things like that. Yeah. I was attracted to that. You know, that had me all over it. So um, I finished my master's degree and went into the PhD program in language, literacy, and rhetoric. Uh, And that's where I am right now. And so far, so good. You know, I like it. Yeah. Wait, so you are working on your doctorate at this point? No, 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 no. I've had a doctorate for almost 20 years. Okay. I'm, I'm a lot older than I look. (laughs) <laughs> good genes yeah, so yeah, yeah. you've been in the academy for decades then yeah i guess so and how do you see it changing right now because that, that's kind of why you reached out to me you wanted to talk about the infiltration of anti-racism as an ideology into your field but how is that situated within the broader academic project and and how does standing up to it in this field potentially affect the other fields okay yeah, there are a couple of questions there i'll start with the easier one okay um good. you know um uh, how anti-racism is manifesting in the field yeah i i say this often and i'll keep saying it the venn diagram of activist and scholar is not a single circle right they are two overlapping circles Okay. Right. And there are certain situations where they will effectively overlap. You can be simultaneously a scholar and an activist. And there are some times when they are antithetical to one another. I guess I can kind of answer the um, other question with this antidote that that um, explains the activist scholar um, situation. Yeah. I was part of a, I am part of a listserv called the Writing Program Administrators Listserv, um, in in which, uh, you know, um, rhetoric professors, administrators can post all kinds of things, you know, calls for papers, uh, calls for conferences, just general information. And in the recent past, it was a place where we could have conversations as well. Um, There was a talk at a recent conference called College Composition and Communication, um, the keynote talk, as a matter of fact, which talked about um, the problem of white language supremacy, okay? Okay. Um, and talked about the problem of white bodies as inherently, you know, um, injurious. Uh, yes. Well, well, well and, yeah, privilege, yes. But also, and a kind of um, emotional violence just by being present. Just like right? emanating off of the white body. Uh, apparently. Well, um, that's like a superhero power or something like that. It's like <laughs> kryptonite. <laughs> yeah, well, I think a lot of people see it that way, 
right? I mean, there's a there's a there's a self-projected infantilization going on here that does see white people with this 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 superhero entity, and we're the poor, you know, uh, mortals or something like that, and they have the power to do something like that. One of the lines in the speech, um, I'm paraphrasing here, but uh, you know. Uh, students of color are suffocated by whiteness, hmm. right? Just the mere presence of people. Hmm. I took issue with that because A, is infantilizing, right? B, I mean, how do you solve that situation? It's not solvable, and I think that's purposeful, uh. right? And C, I don't know how generative it was. I don't really know the point of that statement. Was that supposed to... Um, just wake people up to the issue so that they can start thinking about it? Was it to guilt people into doing certain things? What was the actual point of that? So I expressed these issues on the uh, aforementioned listserv. Oh. It did not go over well. Oh, no. Oh, oh yes. <laughs> it did not go over well. And, you know, I was called, you know, basically a white supremacist by white people, which is a real... You know, I was going to say mind fuck. Can I say that? Yeah, yeah, totally. Were they aware of your race? Or they were just attacking your ideas? Okay. They were aware. Okay. They were were very aware. Um, So with that, you know, uh, all kinds of different um, essays, podcasts came out responding to the racism in this thread. Now, the racism in the thread was me. (laughs) Right. I was I was was a black dude trying to say, listen, this is a very disempowering form of anti-racism. Let's create a more empowering form of anti-racism. That was the racism. Weird. Right. So and and here's here's the thing. Yeah. In in two podcasts and one publication, this racist listserv thread was brought up, but nobody explains what was racist. Okay. Nobody references me at all, let alone, you know, divulge the fact that I'm black. Yeah. That's all left out of it. Why is that left out of it? Because in that situation, those authors, those podcasts, um, hosts and, and, and guests and things like that were primarily activists and not scholars. Okay. Yeah. Right. An activist has an agenda, has a goal, and he or she is going to do whatever it takes to get there. Yeah. A scholar acknowledges what's going on and deals with it, you know, the social reality of the situation. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think... I'm sorry. No, continue, please. Okay. And they realized, I think, that if they did recognize my race and what I was actually saying, it would have weakened the narrative. Right? Yeah. Well, It would have weakened their entire point. So instead of just uh, talking about it and dealing with it and having a real conversation about what really happened, they left out a significant part of what was going on. Right? Well, So what do you think the point is if it needs to ignore that particular truth? Or the reality, or the facts of the matter. What do you think that they're trying to accomplish? I'm not entirely sure. Okay. Um, 
if they're trying to accomplish uh, pedagogical innovation, again, the logistics aren't really there. Um, there is a, an author named Asao anyway who talks about anti-racist pedagogy. Um, but in doing that, he he tends to demonize, I articulate this better in my book, but um, he, he tends to demonize things like reason, critical thinking, and self-reliance, individuality, and, mm. and, and, and things like that. Okay. You know, um, what's more, he also has, you know, a um, book on labor-based grading, which I, I'm not going to talk about now. I think there are some merits to that. Um, so he is trying to do something, you know, legitimate with pedagogy. But his other stuff on anti-racism, I think, um, not just misses the mark, but is very essentialist. Right. In what way? In all, reducing- all black students are the same person. Okay. Like, yeah. Black people are the Borg. Apparently, we, we we're this hive mind that you know we see the world in the same way, and a lot of anti-racism is based on that assumption. You know that we all agree that the world is this way, and we need to change it to whatever. Yeah. Right. Which is not the case. You know, so that's another form of erasure, really. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, not just erasing me individually, but now you're erasing swaths of of uh, a particular race uh, because they don't fit the narrative. Do you think that there might be some justification for doing that as a form of just a short-term reversal of fortunes in order to achieve a better balanced future eventually? I... I thought about that, but then I think about um, a lot of anti-racist ideology that says that white people are always racist and always will be, and they need to be checked on that. You know, John McWhorter's calls it a you know religion, right? There's a religiosity to yeah. this, the sacred victim, and you know, to be white is to you know always have that original sin, yeah. right? So there's no real end to this. Right. And um, apparently I haven't read it, but um, D'Angelo's right fragility, white fragility uh, gets into that as well. Yeah. You know, so I don't think, you know, the, the whole this is a short term thing so that in the long run we can figure some things out and and come back together and reassess things. I don't think that's I don't think that's the case. I don't I don't think there is an ending in sight. Do you think that there might perhaps be and. You mentioned your book. So you're writing a book about, or you have a book about to come out, or you have a book that I, has I come have, out. Um, and that's the critique of anti-racism in rhetoric and composition. Do you, have you analyzed anti-racism in its rhetorical functionings and how it operates, how it spreads? Can you give us some insights into that level of the yes, ideology? Um, identity politics originated as a pretty good idea the um uh kambahi river collective uh, a group of uh black predominantly lesbian activists decided that identity politics you know um was taking one's identity and what one can get out of the situation as a the salient aspect um of the activism while working with other people right from different groups towards a similar goal Right. That was originally identity politics. Um, it's a lot more insular these days. Right. Yeah. Um, lanes. There's a, there's a, what's that? There's a lot of lanes now. 
that you're supposed yes. to stay in. Tons of lanes. Yeah. And um, so instead of talk about identity politics, I talk about something called the primacy of identity. Right. I don't want to, you know, disrespect the Kabahi River Collective by using identity politics. It, it started out well. Now I talk about the primacy of identity, um, which is the prevalence of lived experience over, you know, um, it's uh, abstract thinking. It's a, right. Yeah. Right. And you can combine those things, of course. Yeah. But I mean, there's a tendency to um, to think because I said so is a valid argument. And that's because of, you know, lived experience and, and, and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's also essentialism, you know, the idea that everybody of a certain race looks at the world a certain way, right? A certain similar way. Yeah. Or right. is treated by the world in a certain similar way. Right. Yeah. Right. And although there is, I mean, there are, are definitely similarities. I mean, you know, black people do have some things in common, you know, when it comes to, you know, um, America and its racist tendencies. Right. But that doesn't mean we're interpreting things the same way and that doesn't mean we have the same plans for dealing with that racism and ending that racism right yeah um there is a narcissism that i talked about earlier with the primacy of identity it's not about audience consideration which is supposed to be a um fundamental aspect of rhetoric right i'm going to gauge the situation and speak accordingly it's i'm going to express myself and you're going to deal with it Right. Yeah. Um, and there's a place for that. Yeah. You know? um, and 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 discerning what that place is, is a rhetorical strategy. You're looking at this situation and acting accordingly. Mm -hmm. um, that seems to be ignored when it comes to the primacy of identity. Mm -hmm. So there is a I mean, that's what I see as the rhetoric of anti-racism. And all that comes out of um, a lack of empowerment. And. I define empowerment from, you know, the psychological discipline and its empowerment theory. Um, and that form of empowerment has three components. The first one is intrapersonal, which is basically you know, how we speak to ourselves, how okay. we regard ourselves, uh, our self-efficacy, right? Positive self-regard. And which what's is different from tied to that? Yes. Yeah. That's different from self-esteem. Self-esteem, you know, you you can not be great but think you're great, right? Um, positive self-regard is looking at yourself honestly. What are my strengths, my weaknesses, and going forth from there. And I tie this in with emotional intelligence as well. The intrapersonal is about self-management, right? Uh, motivation, things like that. The next component is the interactional, which is critical awareness of one's surroundings and based on that awareness, discerning the best way to collaborate with others, to, to converse, right? Um, to figure out what values you share with people, which ones you don't, and how to negotiate those things. The behavioral is the third and last component of empowerment, and that is basically just looking at the structures that are already put up in society and using those to to um, achieve something um, you know running for office right writing grants 
mm-hmm. right? Changing policies uh, in an education system or something like that, right? So you need all three of those to be truly empowered, right? So I see a lack of that in a lot of anti-racist initiatives. And because of that lack, um, you know, we do the primacy of identity. We fall back on um, lived experience because we're afraid that anything else will be easily scrutinized, you know, oh, and, okay. and, and and therefore, you know, um, not tossed aside, but not taken as seriously as people would like. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, ignoring my presence in the aforementioned listserv was a lack of empowerment, right? To acknowledge that right, um, is to um, put the movement at jeopardy, right? So we're not going to do that. And I believe that somebody who has those three components of empowerment um, would do that and then seek ways of improving the overall situation, right? Mm. Yeah, analyzing your, I guess, your axioms and your principles and updating them to new input. Right. Basically. Right. Yeah. So that's the premise of this book. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know. Do you think that this, uh, what you're describing now, this movement that you're describing now, do you think that it, it, it can be stable? Uh, because we're watching it grow and spread and take over things. But do you think that it will form some sort of static thing or is it going to collapse on itself without that empowerment without individuals honesty and cooperation I, I think it will collapse yes i think without the um this mode of empowerment or something close to it yeah. um it, it it won't have a leg to stand on after a while right now uh, there's a lot of performance going on in the book i call it prefigurative politics okay um initially prefigurative politics was a good thing you you act out the world you want to see as you're strategically bringing that world to fruition, right? Mm-hmm. Occupy Wall Street tried to do prefigurative politics. They, you know, the camps were, this is the world we want to see. This is the collaboration, you know, and the, um, you know, lateral leadership, you know, that we want to see in the world, right? Too many instances of prefigurative politics, though, stop with the performance. You know, the performance is enough. In this bubble, everything's okay. So we're just going to stay in this bubble. And if people try to come into this bubble, we're going to degrade them or, you know, um, you know, pressure them into seeing things our way and sticking around. Right. So it's, it's a lot of performance going on. I yeah. think I think anti-racism in most of its manifestations in my field anyway um, is a performance, is an aspect of prefiguration. Right. And not a genuine and strategic way of bringing about equity and change and unity and diversity and all that great stuff. Mm -hmm. Do you have a positive uh, vision of what that would look like? What equity or could you define equity and how you think that it would be a good thing to implement? Well, it it seems like common sense to me, you know, Um, give everyone the same opportunities Right, to achieve, give them the tools to achieve, and do not hinder their path to success. Right, allowing life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness to everybody. 
not just in lip service like it's been for you know centuries okay you know in this country right um that's what it looks like to me you know but uh, i think there's a lot of um making up for past uh transgressions going on here right that is getting in the way of actual equity okay do you have uh, why did you go why did you choose to put your eggs in the basket of life liberty and the pursuit of happiness even if that hasn't been actually the case like why do you still believe in that even if there's let's just say 400 years of oppression or 240 years of oppression what why do you if you have a let's say Maserati and you're racing that Maserati you got a race team and things like that and all your drivers seem to be crashing this car way too soon, you know, and, and not really finishing the race. Do you get rid of the Maseratis? Do you find better drivers? Right? Those were bad drivers. They weren't practicing what they were preaching. Okay. I think we're at a point right now where people have sufficiently gone to driving school, right? They know what's going on and they are open, you know, to, you know, uh, having these basic principles of the American creed available to everybody. Now, it's not perfect yet, but we're getting there. And I think the main point is not to throw out the uh, Eurocentric baby with the bathwater, right? You know, it's, it's, it's to make sure that these things are actually used um, in their proper ways. A lot of um, people who call themselves uh, decolonial thinkers yeah. You know, are 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 rightly doing their best to critique things that are uh, considered right or the perfect way of doing things uh, because they're part of, you know, modernity and what we think about it. Right. And they're right to critique that and, and, and push back a little bit. Some people just want to throw everything out. Um, there was a and forgive me, I'm, I'm not the national. Uh, History Museum of African American History, the National Museum of African American History. Sorry, yeah, um, had that infographic. Yeah, you know, in which delayed gratification was a white thing. <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. I'm sorry, it's just it's so bigoted. It's so awful. Yeah, no, right. It's so the, 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 the inherent racism in all of this is lost on them. <sighs> right. I mean, I yeah. can't even say certain things because I'm black. Somebody told me that. I don't understand the harm I'm doing with my black body by wanting this empowerment. And now, okay, suddenly my body's not mine. Yeah, my, my body is belongs to a movement. Yeah, right. And and, and I'm not an individual anymore. Well, how do you it's, effectively resist such a Borg-like uh, mindset that is like these people are willing to disregard facts? To, to play around with, you know, what's actually going on to get their way. So you just let it continue? Or, or like, what are the effective strategies? Um, well, for me, it's to exist and keep saying what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Um, there's not... I may have written a book, but there's not a lot I'm saying that's particularly profound. Right? I mean, it's... it's I'm pointing out that the emperor has no clothes. Yeah. You know, and and as the story tells us, a child can do that. So I'm not, you know, I'm not this innovative genius. I'm just somebody saying, hey, um, he's not wearing any clothes, you know, and I'm willing to keep doing that. Secondly, and I mean, 
I'm black. You know, if a white person did this, uh, there would be a um, a mob of pitchforks yeah. and torches chasing him or her out of town, right? Um, that mob is there for me, but you know, they're 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 not as numerous or not as powerful. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. They and don't they have don't that. Yeah. So, how do you empower those who are the silent majority, who know that they can't speak up? What are they to do? Because academia is filled with these people who are just acting like sheep now and allowing these radicals to basically capture scholarship. Some people are acting like sheep. The grandstanders, the virtue signalers, I know some of them all too well. Other people want to speak up, but they have precarious job situations you know they don't have tenure you know um they have adjunct status and uh they don't want to rock the boat and i understand that i am the moderator for a um an online group called heterodox um rhetoric and composition the heterodox academy has various subgroups um based in academic disciplines um and um some geographically i think there's a heterodox new york city you know, but um, I'm the moderator of that, and that is a space where um, you know people can go and have these conversations and talk about these things without fear of being ostracized or um, mobbed on social media or something like that. Yeah. And when I announced the, the existence of this group on the aforementioned listserv that caused all this trouble, um, I got some pushback there too, but. That was expected. What's the content of the pushback? Um, well, they think heterodox, the heterodox academy, even that term heterodoxy, the term viewpoint diversity, they are all Trojan horses for white supremacy. Okay. You know, so you're 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 saying, okay, you want a uh, diversity of viewpoints. You want you want people to be able to say what they you know want to say or to ask questions. You know, um, to ask for clarity, you know, to um, ask for elaboration. But really, you just want to open the door for more white supremacy and racism. Okay. Right. So that's that's what is going on there. And, And that is why dialogue and debate are both on their deathbeds, because those things open the door for the idea that they may be wrong. You know, scrutiny goes against the um, fortification Certainly. of a cult, yeah, you know. Yeah. So they gotta they gotta get rid of that. How but do you think? Don't. Have you? What is your viewpoint of that suddenly being par for the course of the academy? Like, what what do you think is the origin of that and how it crept? I mean, is, is it par for the course for the academy? I know there are places like Evergreen. You know, um, I, I I know there are. Places like uh, you know what happened at Yale, um, which is which is similar. Um, I don't know. This seems like a loud minority, okay. right? As opposed to and a silent majority is just I don't know waiting for the storm to pass. I don't know. Okay. Um, but I think a lot of this, especially this year, you know, um, nobody wants to be on the wrong side of history here. Yeah. Right. So we're people are deferring to people of color, right? 
um, to, you know, lead the way towards true equity. Unfortunately, some of those people of color are doing something that does more harm than good to people of color, um, like inadvertently promoting black fragility, you know, um, an infantilized way of being, right? Um, a complete lack of agency to anybody with a minoritized body, right? As if we, you know, it's it's hopeless and all we can do is make white people, you know, um, get out of the way and silence themselves and then everything would be okay. I, I, I can't stand that idea and too many people have it. Mm. Um, the lack of empowerment, you know, all these things um, going on. I, I just got so angry right now that I forgot your question. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> I want to know... If, if you will allow me this question, and, and you can deny me, but why are you so angry? Why does this matter? Like, what, what are the fundamental core ideas, and why, why are you standing your ground on these things? Why is it important that human beings, for you, have personal empowerment, honesty, and, and the ability to reason beyond their lived experience? Like, why is that so rooted in, in your identity or your individuality? I grew up I'm going to tell you a story. Please. Um, I grew up in a predominantly white neighborhood. Um, and they let me know it okay. on, on a regular basis. Right? Um, they were, you know, quite racist, the kids and the adults. And I I had to deal with that. But what I, what I noticed, and I noticed this at a young age, like, they're bad people, right? The people who were treating me that way. It's, I'm not inferior. They're just awful, and I'm fine. Okay. Right. So that that's the kind of attitude I have. I also wanted to get out of it. Right. It still hurt. So I wanted to get out of it. So after great, uh, graduating the eighth grade, we went to a regional high school that was much more diverse. It was pretty much fifty-fifty black and white, hmm. with um, you know um, other races and ethnicities. Um, in there, right? Obviously not entirely 50-50. And I said, okay, this is my chance. I'm going to find my people and all this is going to end. And I found, you know, the other black students, um, you know, uh, played on a basketball team with them and things like that. And they weren't my people. I was too white to them. Oh, no. Right? So, so now I'm getting rejected by both parties. Yeah. And I'm like, you know, this this whole allegiance to a group or things like that, um, it, it it it's it's not about critical thinking, it's about status, attitude, group esteem, things like that. I want to think for myself. I want to make sure that I utilize reason and rationality and critical thinking instead of going with the party line of my group. Right? I'm gonna be that person. And. You know, so and, and that motivated a lot of my academic pursuits. But now it's happening here. Mm. Mm -hmm. You know, now it's happening here. And I'm like, I got to do something about this. Yeah. This this the, the, the book I just showed you was a very different book. Um, originally, um, when that listserv thread happened, um, where I announced that I, I was seeing a lot of disempowerment here and then they responded in ways that were indicative of disempowerment yeah i decided to totally revamp this book with four months to go before it's due date oh no 
I do not recommend that to anybody. <laughs> I'm sure years have been taken off my life. Um, uh, it's not psychologically healthy, but I had to do it. I had to do it. You know, I, I was seeing this idea. I mean, it says the semblance of empowerment here because I'm talking about the lack the of empowerment or the semblance of it. Okay, yeah. And anti-racism. And to give you an indication of how much the book changed, it wasn't about empowerment. Right? I, I had to re uh, revise certain things, certain chapters, add entire chapters. Yeah. Right? In order to get this book because I felt it was that important. You know, and long story short, you know, I, I see, you know, this is going to sound dramatic, but the death of freedom hmm. in, in okay. academia, and I don't want that. The death, uh, what, could you define freedom and how it's embattled right now? What do you mean by freedom? Um, well, if you say certain things... Well, if you are certain people, that's bad. If you say certain things, that's also bad. This manifesto that came out yesterday, there's a section that talks about, um, you know, um, acceptance practices of journals and things like that and what you should accept and what you shouldn't. Who should be cited in certain texts and who shouldn't. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's that's a slippery slope, my friend. And I just want to make sure that, you know, the snowball doesn't get so big that it can take out of town. Right. And um, yeah. Yeah, that seems to be happening. And they are serious. You know, they're not playing. So around. you don't think it, you don't think it's performative. You don't think that that particular sheet is performative. Well, it, it is performative because, well, two things. Right. Um, the people don't have to listen to them. Right. And two, a lot of what they're talking about, there's there's no. There's no logistic basis. You know, what exactly are you asking for here? How is this going to change pedagogy other than having a better attitude towards um, non-standard Englishes? Other than that, what, what's going on? So in a sense, it is performative. In a sense, it's just, and this is my opinion here, um, it's just saying, we're going to push back on you. We're angry. And we just want to show you how angry we are. Yeah. Right? Okay. Yeah. That's the main purpose. Okay. Which is kind of childish <clears throat> but if they're going after okay so if it is a performance it shouldn't be taken seriously is what you're saying but there's a lot of social pressure to take it seriously how powerful are these people even if they are throwing a tantrum um i you know um one person is the current chair of college composition and communication so, I mean, there's some power there. Um, but others, I mean, I wouldn't say they're so powerful that they can affect my career or anything like that. Um, or anybody's. But they have taken it upon themselves to speak for all black people. Mm -hmm. And when that happens, a lot of well-meaning white people say, okay, well, this must be what all black people want because this is the official statement, you know, of, um, let's see here. What are they? There's a name they have for themselves. Is it an acronym or is it something clever? Um, I think it's kind of clever. Like the Birds of Ascendant Dawn or something like that? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's not a sci-fi novel. Um, <laughs> um, let's see here. 
where is it? I'll, I'll get to you in, oh, yes. The statement is called, this ain't another statement, this is a demand for black linguistic justice. Okay. The group, I, don't, I can't believe I can't find it right now. I'll get it to you in a second. Let's just no, move fine. on. Yeah. yeah. So, what are ways to creatively counter this? Rhetorically, let's say. What are, what are some of the methods of, uh, you know, approaching these demands to take the wind out of their sails or to expose them for what they are? Because that, that's kind of what I do part-time, so I'm looking for tips, trips, tricks, and expertise. I will answer that, but first I found the uh, name of the committee. The Special Committee on Composing a College Composition and Communication Statement on Anti-Black Racism and Black Linguistic Justice, or Why We Can't Breathe. Oh, no. Yes, and in fact, the, the initial announcement for this totally used George Floyd <sighs> as a way of getting into this. So, I mean... Okay. What's your reaction sure. to that? Um, I, I don't know yet. It's so new. Okay. I mean, so, some I, I've talked to some people, and they, you know, they they find it relatively tasteless. Um, but two months ago, somebody used or talked about a conversation about George Floyd to open up a conversation about ad hominems in conversation. Right? Okay. I mean, is it is saying I don't understand because I'm white? This is what this person was saying. An ad hominem. Or is it something we should interpret differently, right? And he wanted to open up that conversation. Interesting. He was destroyed for using George Floyd as a discussion prompt for something else. This comes out yeah. in which he's he's using George Floyd. He actually uses a metaphor that you know um, teaching standard English is like having a neck on having your knee on black people's necks. That is said there. Yeah. You know, that is, even metaphorically, that's in bad taste. Yeah, yeah. But nothing's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. But, well, because he's on the right side of right. the cancel knife, I guess. Yes, yes. So, you asked me questions before. Well, uh, this is one frustrating thing about this particular movement, is that laterally, if you just look at all their different statements, they contradict themselves constantly. Yeah. But teleologically, it makes sense. Mm -hmm. If you assume that they want power. Right. And that's where the activist over scholar comes in. Right. It's all about the telos. Yeah. You know, it's, it's not about looking at things. It's not about acknowledging my existence as the race's voice and that thread that is the subject of two podcasts and an article. Yeah. Right. That that would that mode of scholarship is too dangerous to the movement at large. Right. So, I mean, there is that again, pointing it out, being vocal about it. Mm -hmm. is 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 one way of doing this but um another way um is pedagogical i mean they're talking about a lot of uh classroom practices and things like that i see problem-based learning as a um way of addressing this uh, problem-based learning is um when students work on a project that is authentic there is an actual client you know um in the real world that they're working for my yeah. students, excuse me, my students have done marketing strategies for people, right, mostly. And um, that's when I called problem-based learning? Problem-based learning, or PBL. Okay. okay. 
And the point of this is to look at the social reality, look at the, you know, the uh, reality of the situation and speak or write based on that. So there may be a client or a situation um, within that client's um, social workings, right, that will dictate to the students that they should use black English, right? That could happen. Mm-hmm. Or they should use, they could use something more uh, in line with code meshed English, black and standard. English. But pardon footnote: Are you allowed to do that as a white person, or is that you're not allowed to do that? So you need to hire a black person to write that copy for you uh, under the dictates of uh, a cultural appropriation, right? Um, well, that's another thing. That's a whole other topic. Okay, but I it's there. I just want to say that that, that whole clip there, is there. Yes. Okay. All right. It's there. It's there. Okay. Um, but theoretically, you know, if the students decide that that's the best way to go about things, then they will go about it in that way. Mm-hmm. I have yet to have a group decide that a language of wider communication or something like what we're using right now isn't the best way to go for certain situations. Now, that's not to say that standard English is better than any other dialect. Well, it's all about being effective. It's not a, it's not a right. value judgment, uh, other right. than utilitarian, I guess. Yes, yes. Uh, it's effective, it's utilitarian, but to anti-racist proponents, like the ones who wrote this and other people, it's a value judgment. Yeah. First and foremost. That's okay. what it is. Right? right. So as long as it's a value judgment, it's racist. If it's utilitarian and pragmatic... Well, it's utilitarian and pragmatic, mm-hmm. you know, and that's what PBL does. It it, it, it it has the students gauge the rhetorical situation and speak or write accordingly. Yeah. And I think PBL is powerful because it looks at reality. It's not a contrived classroom situation. Right. I'm not giving them an assignment I made up. The assignment's real. Yeah. Right. It's in actual society with real people, real stakeholders, and they have to do their best to be as persuasive as possible. Mm-hmm. So and plus, you I, get a cut if they do good, right? Uh, no, I do not. Oh, okay. <laughs> you, you mentioned something. I want to explore this, or if you have any thoughts on this. It seems that what we're describing now, this movement, is attempting to turn the entire world into a morality play, in, in a way. What are some precedents for that, or what are some aspects of when a group of discourse, or a group discourse, is based so thoroughly on a moral uh, landscape or process like this? Um, besides talking about the Salem witch hunts, I don't really know, I don't really have an answer <laughs> for you regarding that. Um, I mean, you I, see I don't that? Is, that is that some way for us to make sense of why contradiction doesn't matter? And to, to push it a little further than just saying that it's activist uh, scholar contention, but there's some sort of manifest social dynamic. Do you have any thoughts on that? Or within a linguistic community, uh, what like kind of how that shapes discourse um like you said earlier it's teleological right you know it's uh it's all about the end point and this by any means necessary activism will you know skirt certain things that were inherently academic before like like you know not hiding research that doesn't align with your narrative Mm -hmm. you know um 
I don't have any solid okay. examples from history, right, about what you're talking about. But I mean, in cultic studies, you know, studies of cults and things like that, you know, um, punishment for heresy is called uh, dispensing with existence. Right, um, and and what that means is, you know, silencing or erasing somebody or who has a loud voice. Right. I mean, yeah, you know, they they pretended I wasn't, you know, um, on that listserv thread, and that that is a common practice of cults. We're just going to pretend this person isn't here. Yeah. Okay. Right. Now, um, I mean, many people have used the cult metaphor before. Uh, some people will say it's not a metaphor. Right. Yeah. Um, so that's that's nothing new. But, you know, when I was doing my own research, I, I found that very telling that, um, I mean, cancel culture is, you know, dispensing of, of existence. Right. Dispensing existence. So in your book, is it structured with uh, kind of like some sort of, well, OK, here's the state of things. Where do we go now? Or is it kind of just basically a wake-up call? Do you have any uh, solutions or answers or you know? It's, it's basically a wake-up call. Other than problem-based learning, yeah. which I introduced in the in the book's conclusion, right? It's really just um, you know uh, exposing the problem, right? And yeah. I take the whole book to to do that mostly. Mm-hmm. And maybe the next book will be about a solution. Yeah. Uh, but the, the the initial book, the book I was writing before this, kind of it 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 questioned understandings of identity and the self, right? And um, hmm. you know, uh, are we essential people? Are we socially constructed? And if we are, what does that say about identity politics? You know, about the essentialism that happens in what I'm calling a primacy of identity. What does all that say? I mean, I I I, I dip into buddhist philosophy and it was a very different book yeah some of that makes it into this but my my idea was that you know you can't offer a cure to somebody who doesn't know he's sick you know who isn't convinced that he's sick in the first place so this is the this is the diagnosis and maybe the next book will be okay a proposed cure so what would you have, if you, if you had the power um, to rewrite our current timeline, what would you think is the proper response to, I guess, using whatever th- thing happened this year uh, to motivate the, a conversation around race? What do you think is the proper, you know, things that we should assess as a nation? And, you know, what would you have us focus on? both dialogically and maybe in areas of policy or beyond, or in the academy. I, I published an op-ed with Newsweek a, a couple of weeks ago um, addressing the fact that a lot of um, black activists and activists of color don't want to have conversations with white people who want to be allies because they're tired. You know, there's a this, this line of emotional intelligence that's always coming up. Yeah. Right. Um, labor and exhaustion. Right. Labor and exhaustion and things like that. And I say this is we have to ride this site, guys. This is too important of a time. You don't let the uh, banning of the Confederate flag go by without riding that wave. Right. OK. Uh, there are some other things that have happened that are comparable to the banning uh, of the Washington Redskins. 
are now the Washington football team. Uh, they may get creative later on, but yeah. if you would have told me in January that those things were going to happen, I would have called you a liar. You know, we, we have to jump on this and collaborate, right? And not resegregate. A lot of the, you know, the logical progression of a lot of what they're talking about, especially this document that uh, came out yesterday, is segregation. Black schools and white schools. Yeah. yeah. That's the logical pro- progression of this. If you keep going with this, that's where we go. Right? I don't know if they see that. But that's what I'm seeing. I'm not the only one. So yeah, oddly have- for such a teleologically aimed uh, in in practice, like they don't want to see where they're going at the same time right. as doing everything to right. get there. <laughs> right. That that's insane. Right. I mean, that's that's yeah. So uh, it, it's very confusing. What I would do, what we need to do now is collaborate. Ha- have a heterodox attitude, and what that means is that sometimes people are going to say things out of ignorance that you don't like. We have to deal with that, and so do they. When you say things they don't like, mm-hmm. we have to get over that. We have to get over either-or thinking, um, either-or ontology, right? I am essentially this, you're essentially that, done. We have to yeah. get over that. And we have to start having these generative and adaptive conversations. Yeah, as opposed to order- a- uncomfortable. Yes. Yeah. Right. Sorry, rooted and- in... I'm sorry. Uh, I, I cut you off. I'm sorry. Uh, and our uh, audio connection is funky, too. Oh, um, I believe but I was saying it. we have... Yeah. We have to have adaptive conversations, you know, um, compare and contrast values, talk about, you know, um, how we can work together. Um, there's a theorist named Otto Schwarmer who calls it presencing. Hmm. Going into these situations with an open mind, open heart, and an open will. What that means is... I may have an idea of what I want to happen here, but I gotta I gotta check that at the door, and be open to whatever emerges organically, and you know, that can benefit all involved. If people come already thinking they're right, or already thinking they have a solution, they're gonna bump heads more than they're going to collaborate. Yeah, right. So that's what needs to happen. What 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 Sharma calls presencing, right? Like being there and being open. I think Leotard called it narrative pragmatism. Right. You know, um, you're going to do what's best for this situation, this situation. And then we'll go into the next situation and reopen ourselves. Mm-hmm. Right. I think that attitude is imperative. So and if empo- oh, sorry, no, go on. Empowerment, you know, necessitates that, especially the uh, interactive component, which is all about being critically aware of your surroundings and collaborating and, and speaking uh, effectively with everybody else in those surroundings. Right. So. But if the discourse is uh, controlled by the tantrum makers, what do you do then in that situation? If there's no room for presence because the small group is dominating the conversation. Um, do you just go to somewhere else and just ignore them? Start other conversations? Some people er- do that. Erode their audience that way? I, I some people um, I, I had somebody today say you know let's just ignore them you know they're 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 not affecting us really let's just go away mm-hmm. and I don't I don't feel comfortable doing that for a couple of reasons um, one they're claiming to represent me and who I am and what I think and 
I don't like that. <laughs> so, and I'm sure I'm not the only one who doesn't like it. And B, I mean, I think when you, we're, we're here because we ignore things, you know, in my opinion. I think, and I did this, like 15 years ago, I was like, well, that's silly. It makes no sense. That's not going to catch on. And, you know, now Talking we're here. And, this, right. Yeah, way of thinking. You know, so I, I think to leave it alone is not the best thing to do either. I resolved to be as loud as possible about these things and to write more books if I need to, do more talks like this if I need to. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm a part of a Zoom on Friday in which I will be interviewed about the book in front of um, you know various people in my field. So things like that, just staying vocal and staying consistent um, and, and letting them realize that there are people of color who don't abide by what they're what they're talking about, right? Jason Whitlock is one person. We have uh, John McWhorter and Glenn Lowry, mm-hmm. right? Who are who are saying similar things, right? So just and, and and people are popping up all over the place. Charles Barkley said something recently. I mean, people people are it's it's starting to we're starting to see the people of color saying, "Wait a minute, mm-hmm. are we thinking this through?" Like that's happening now. So I hope that you know, gain some momentum. Okay. You, you were talking about your uh, going from eighth grade to ninth grade and seeing that the, just seeing yourself as not wanting to be a part of tribalism, I guess you said specifically that you kind of clung to critical thinking. Who put that idea in your head? Was there, what, what caused you to realize that that was your way forward? I've always been a big fan of reality. Right. <laughs> Okay, well, what caused you to be a fan and not a hater of reality? Well, I, w- I would always, and this, this from both tribes, right? I would always say, wait, that's not, that's not happening. Okay. You know, nobody's saying anything insulting right now, all right? Or I didn't do anything, you know, uh, that was specifically black, you know, just then. You're, you're saying that to maintain the... Uh, huh difference between my tribe and yours quote unquote right i I kept seeing people talk about things that weren't happening right and i also saw a lot of um people dismissing that critical thinking and reason and things like that because it didn't result in things they wanted to see exactly what's going on now you know um so I mean, did I call it critical thinking at the time? No. Yeah. But that's what it was. I, I, I like um, Richard Paul, the late philosopher, uh, his definition of fair-minded critical thinking, you know, is basically looking at reality regardless of what you want to see, right? And sophistic critical thinking, you know, based on Plato's enemies, the sophists, right? Mm-hmm. Is, you know, epistemological rigor insofar as it supports what you want right so that's that's the truncated kind of critical thinking i think we see a lot in uh, a lot of uh, anti-racist activism mm-hmm. but i'm a fair-minded critical thinker i like to think i am anyway mm-hmm. i'm trying i'm going for that i don't think people should go for it too yeah i stand by you in your pursuit of spreading that across the land but <laughs> 
<laughs> do you think that we can get to a point where uh, what do you what do you think about the concept of color blindness and and not seeing color anymore and uh, where that's legitimate and where that's not legitimate? Well, I, I understand the sentiment behind it. You know, people are saying I'm going to treat you as a person and I'm not going to let your color get in the way, which is an issue because color shouldn't get in the way in the first place. Right. I mean, don't uh, don't be colorblind. See my color and treat me with respect anyway. Okay. Right. That's yeah. the that's the uh, that's the issue with uh, with colorblindness. That being said, I get where people are coming from when they use that term. I, I, I always have. But there is that one problem I just gave you. And another problem is that colorblindness seems to not look at more structural issues that need to be addressed as well. It's an interpersonal thing as opposed to a, a social or a systemic thing. What, what do you think is the most pressing systemic um, thing that we should be focusing on while the attention is on the disparity of, uh, I guess, black, the black community in America? Like what, what, What's some tangible thing that you think should be pinpointed and addressed? I, th I, I think there's a large socioeconomic element to this, right? You know, there's a disparity of inner city schools to private schools, uh, suburban schools, things like that. Um, poverty is a substantial issue here, right? I'm not, I'm not going to say that culture is a substantial issue and people need to change their cultures. I'm not, I'm not going in that direction. Hmm. I think if people are less precarious, if they have less precarious lives, they won't do things out of necessity that may get them in trouble or actually um, be a detriment to their lives and the lives of others, mm -hmm. right? I think people need a, a social economic secure base and a lot of these things will take care of themselves. Where do you lean on uh, dealing with that issue? What do, you, what do you mean? Uh, do you think um, like more social programs, more education, more, uh, I guess, uh, some form of uh, redistribution of resources in order to lift up communities or entrepreneurialism or a kind of capitalist-based solutions? I, I lean towards the entrepreneurial. And I, that's the first time I've said that out loud. Oh, no. Because, I, <laughs> because I, I, I've, I've been trying to figure things out myself, but... Um, you know, um, I, I have a colleague, um, not not at this institution, but in the field, who sees entrepreneurship as an, a mode of social justice. You know, um, you know, teaching students to be enterprising, right? Uh, with what they're doing, even whether it's making money or not, right? Just giving them that agency, that power, that empowerment, yeah. right? You know, that's. Um, I see that happening there. So I, I lean more towards that. Um, I think um, financial literacy should be centered more than it is right now, right? There are people who, you know, have knowledge that others don't, and that's why they have more money than others don't. It's not, they're not geniuses. You know, they, they know where to put their money and when and why. Yeah. So um, that's also a situation I see. Regarding the redistribution of things, reparations and things like that, oh, I'm yeah. up to minds about that. I mean, you can you can you can fund certain things, defund some one thing, and and put it someplace else, and say that's a kind of reparations. I don't know. Um, and I and that I kind of get, but I think um, I think reparations would be 
a big problem because it wouldn't solve everything. And we still have social problems. And we still say, hey, we need help over here. And the powers that be may say, we gave you all that money. Get out of here. Yeah. Now it's over. Hmm. Now we paid you. Now it's your problem, right? Yeah. Money's not going to solve everything. So, um, so I, I, I'm wishy-washy when it comes to reparations. I'm still trying to figure out what I think about it. Are you? Um, how has teaching been during the time of COVID for you? How have you been faring? I was on sabbatical. Oh well, there you go. I mean, it's it's it's, it's a blessing and a curse. The right? world followed you there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had a lot of trips that couldn't go on anymore. So that's bad. Also, like I'm, everybody else had to learn on the fly about this. I'm still learning how to teach online, and the semester is like two minutes away. So yeah, you know, I'm kind of freaking out about that. But I'll, I mean, I'll figure it out. But yeah, I was, I was, I was on sabbatical. I, I didn't deal with any of that. Cool. Um, I want to ask you like a wrap up question, maybe about rhetoric. I love it. What, what? What do you think? Why do you think it's important for people to learn this? What is it, and why do you think that it's an essential part of an education? Like, just your. I have a deep theoretical answer to that that has to do with concepts of consubstantiality and Buddhist concepts of dependent origination. I will just say this: when trying to effectively communicate with somebody, you have to do two things. You have to listen rhetorically right and what that means is just you know putting aside what you think and accepting that person and what that person is trying to say and you have to have a level of empathy even if it's cognitive empathy and not emotional empathy to figure out why this person's saying that right um what the person's saying why the person is saying it. i think those are two integral parts of effective communication and that's why i believe in rhetorical studies that's, it, the, that's the short version. It sounds like the basis of uh, civilization, <laughs> what, you're, what you're describing there. Yeah, again, I'm not saying anything profound. Okay. <laughs> you know, just, this, is, this is it. Well, cool, Eric. Is, is that Zoom uh, call going to be open to the public, or is there other things that I can plug or you would like to plug um, for my audience? Um. I don't know if it's open to the public. I think certain individuals can get invited uh, and things like that. Um, and I can look into that and get back to you okay. about it. Um, but as far as other things to plug, no, not really. I just, uh, I like opportunities to speak right, and <laughs> say what I need to say. Is that the so real reason you got into rhetoric? So you can talk. <laughs> <laughs> to talk about rhetoric, yes. Yeah, yes, okay. To be, to be rhetorical about rhetoric. Yeah, I love it. Uh, I'll, I'll end the recording there, and uh, thanks for your time. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk about this. Yeah. I don't know if I was as articulate as I wanted to be, but I, I think I got my point across. Yeah. It's yeah. a journey. You're getting, yeah. You've done a, several of these, right? Or one or two? One or two, yeah. yeah. That's cool. So, all right. Thank you. And, yeah. and let me just say, I appreciate your work and everything you're doing. The, the, real, the real evergreen, the complete evergreen story, I mean, it's riveting. 
Did you get a chance to check I, it out? Yeah, I, I watched all the episodes so far. I mean, I, I just couldn't. I was up to like four in the morning, man. <laughs> really? You know? And I. <laughs> and, and and yeah, that's. I, I'm dealing with similar sentiments. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. So, my aim is. Back. To try to show, um, and I don't know if they'll listen, but trying to show, like, that, okay, the kids acted crazy, like, absolutely crazy, but one step down is the teachers, and there's a direct connection to that yep. behavior and these ideas. Uh, yep. So, with me, it's flipped. The teachers are acting crazy, and down here are the students who are like, I'm not being oppressed, I just want to learn how to use a comma. Yeah, exactly. You know, and, you know so... <laughs> I think most kids want that. It's such a shame. It's educational malpractice. It, they're wasting the resources of, of th- this generation on these performative, uh, you know, authoritarian regimes. I agree. Yeah. So here we are. Let's fight the good fight. Yeah. Will do, Eric. Thanks a lot for your afternoon. I hope you have a good evening. Yeah, you too. And thanks Will again. Do. Yeah. Ciao. Congratulations for reaching the end of the podcast. If you enjoyed this product, consider donating to this channel via paypal.me slash Benjamin Boyce or joining me on Patreon. Also follow me on Twitter at Benjamin A. Boyce. Have a good night.